the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we try to do here every weekday at 4 o'clock is to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, life questions, whatever we can. You know, one of the things that thrills me every day is knowing that whatever problems I'm having, whatever questions may be circulating in my heart and my mind, uh, the the Bible has the answers to it. And all we have to do is find those answers, be obedient, and um, God will take care of the rest. I love that thing. I was just talking to my producer here, and um, I'm going to be starting in the book of Isaiah. When we finish Second Samuel, um, I'm going to be starting on Wednesday nights in the book of Isaiah. Today I've been working on the, my study for the first chapter of Isaiah. And um, it, it's just absolutely thrilling. And yet it's so applicable to our lives. And it's just another one of those examples where the... The, the, the Lord shows you. He's got the answers for all the problems. Nothing has ever changed. The problems that existed when Isaiah was prophesying are the same problems we have today, and the answers are still the same. Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. If you have questions, if you've got something going on, you can call us by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free if you're outside the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit one button. It says call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Let's go right to the telephone lines. We've got Tanya from San Leandro, California on line one. Tanya, good to hear from you. Thank you for calling. It's even better to hear your voice, Papa Ron. <laughs> Thank you, Tanya. I was so happy to see you on Sunday morning. I, I always log in to get up early to make sure I watch the services, and I was so just grateful to God and just so tearful that he just is so good and he hears us. And I'm just glad that you're you're uh, doing well, and I'm um, praying for a speedy and full recovery for you, <laughs> without a doubt. Thank you, Tanya. I am really doing well. The the, the pain level is uh, almost inconsequential compared to what it was the first time I had this surgery uh, 14 or 15 months ago. Uh, In fact, I was telling uh, somebody that that the pain is so inconsequential, I have to be reminded often not to use my left arm. But things are going well. It's just now a matter of getting my strength back. And uh, being able to think, you know, with, with, uh, without my mind wandering. So, but I'm doing really well, and I really, really appreciate your prayers. Wonderful. Okay, I have a question for you. So this is, um, I have a friend of mine, and she is certainly uh, asking questions from a good heart. It's not a, mm-hmm. uh, I got gotcha you question. And one of the things she was asking about was, and, and the term gray area, 
about the Bible always makes my skin cringe. And it could be something that maybe I shouldn't feel like it's cringing. But she was asking a question. She said, you know, I understand the Bible about homosexuality. And this, like you said yesterday, this is the topic for, I I live in California, in the Bay Area, nonetheless, San Francisco uh, Bay Area. So she said, you know, the Bible doesn't say that you can divorce if your husband beats you. She said, doesn't it kind of seem like potentially we're taking a liberty with that? Why can't we take a liberty of other things? She said, I feel like sometimes it's a slippery slope. And and, and I know her heart is, is she's coming from the right place, Pastor. She's not trying to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, rude or, or, or she truly wants to know. And then she brought up the term about gray areas in the terms of like, well, how come people can't use marijuana? And I show her in scripture, and the Bible says we're supposed to be sober-minded. And she says, well, you know, feminism, you know, people say it's, it's really awful. And I said, you know, I told her, Jesus loves women. He respects them. Look at how many times he's wonderfully, you know, blessed them. And so I, the term gray area, is there anything that people that legitimately is a gray area? I don't believe so. And that term makes my skin crawl. And also her question about, well, look. It doesn't specifically say that you can leave your husband. It only says for uh, adultery. You know, like, why are we, she's like, where do you draw the line? And, and I'll, I'll leave that loaded question with you because I know that it is, um, she's probably listening. So um, I would like to uh, leave that with you, sir, and I'll listen offline. Thank you, Tanya. God bless you again. Thank you for your prayers. You know, these are questions, gray areas. Most of the time people mean when they say gray areas, um, they're, they're referencing um, particular areas that aren't specifically covered by sin. Uh, I've had people say, well, why didn't Jesus say anything about homosexuality? Well, Jesus said a lot about marital faithfulness. Jesus said a lot uh, about walking in holiness and pursuing God. So so they would say, well, well, well that's a gray area because Jesus didn't cover it. Um, well, but it's covered in the word that's written by the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. Um, there are all kinds of things that we try to rationalize away. If we want to do something, uh, I'll just use this example first before going on about things, uh, other issues uh, about um, abuse. You know, uh, on one side, um, the Lord says we're called to live in peace. Um, um, obviously, a man who beats his wife has violated the marriage covenant, uh, covenant to, to protect her and to cherish her. Uh, so he is violating the covenant of marriage just as surely as if he slept with somebody else. It's not like beating a woman is less severe in the eyes of God than having sex with somebody you're not married to. Both of those things are violators of the covenant of marriage. And when that covenant has been violated, abandonment is another issue. When somebody just leaves, it doesn't mean that the person who's been abandoned has to stay in that relationship. On the other side of that equation, Tanya, for you and your friend, it's important that we understand that we want abuse on the other side. And and, and I've got a constant stream, particularly of women, who will talk about being emotionally abused. And I have to tell them all the time that being married to a jerk is not grounds for divorce, especially in most cases when, uh, you know, people aren't just jerks. I mean, it, it takes two to mess up a marriage. And so we've got, other, well, if physical abuse is, is a reason for divorce, why is it emotional abuse? Well, uh, because the Bible doesn't talk about emotional abuse. The Bible simply says that the husband who is violating his wife by not treating her, loving her as Christ loved the church, is guilty of sin. God will deal with him. But remember, that doesn't give the wife uh, an out just because she's unhappy. And we have so broadened this idea of abuse uh, physical abuse is pretty easy to, to 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 decipher for all of us, but emotional abuse um, is it a constant, ongoing attack? Is it is it just that he's not satisfying you or not meeting your needs? So those are the things that we would call gray areas, and I think what we have to do in those gray areas, Tanya, is to uh, determine through the whole counsel of God what the heart of God is on some of those issues. You know, Jesus, as I said earlier, didn't talk about homosexual behavior because in a Jewish uh, community, especially based on uh, the Jews' fear of God, especially after the, the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which, which would have been passed from generation to generation to generation, uh, homosexuality wasn't an issue in a Jewish culture. 
they understood that a man should not lie with a man or a woman with a woman. So Jesus didn't have to discuss that. Jesus talked about the coming kingdom of God, his role in establishing that kingdom. So those are the things that we have to do. But gray areas, uh, really, we find aren't so gray. I had a, a dear friend, a pastor on staff here for many, many years. And he used to say, you know, the closer you get to Jesus, the darker those gray areas become. And I think tend the reason it makes your skin crawl when you hear people talk about gray areas uh, is because um, you see them as black and white. There's a, a, an obedient response and a disobedient response. And the closer you get to the disobedient response, the, the closer you are to falling into sin. And we know that Jesus doesn't preclude us from doing things um, not because he doesn't want us to have fun or enjoy things. He doesn't. He, he precludes us from doing things because he knows what's best for us. With this issue of marijuana, we had a question about this. Um, I, I'm not sure if it was yesterday or the last time I did the program. Uh, I get questions on this radio show all the time about marijuana. What's so bad it's not different than, than alcohol? It is different because God addresses one in the scripture. He doesn't address the other. Now, here's something else in Jesus' culture that he wouldn't have had to worry about. People weren't getting high on drugs. Drugs weren't a part of that culture, so Jesus wouldn't have to address those things. But we can take the heart of God and the teaching that we have about being sober. We can we can take the Greek word for for um, um, witchcraft. In effect, it's pharmakia. Uh, we get our English word pharmaceuticals from it. And the idea is that we need to have a mind that is obedient to Christ. And, and we can't do that if we're high. We can't do that. We, I talked in the question, I think it was yesterday, about the, the potency of marijuana as opposed to, uh, for example, the time that I grew up during the hippie days. Uh, it's 10, 15 times stronger now. So just because a world says it's okay, we've got to decide, are we going to take our cue from the world or are we going to take our cue from the Word of God? And Tanya, these are the things, and here's the one thing that you can really challenge your friend with in the most loving of ways. These are areas of life that are going to reveal her true heart for God. You know, Paul says that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. He says he doesn't want to be mastered by any. And somebody who smokes marijuana regularly is mastered by it. Whether they're in denial or not is not the issue. Somebody who drinks every day is is being controlled by the alcohol. So those are the things that reveal our heart toward God. The issue of homosexuality, you know, the world is trying to bombard us to make us feel like we're we're some Neanderthals if we don't accept that the world is changing and just accept people for who they are. Well, if we're not in the Word of God, the world is going to win that argument and our true heart for the Lord is going to be revealed. And these are things that every person needs in their lives because these are the constant battles that we have to deal with that reveal what God already knows about our heart but reveals to us where our heart is with God. You know, the husband who yells at his wife, we know where his heart is with the Lord. It's far from God. The wife who wants an excuse to get out of a marriage, we know where her heart is. Her heart is far from God. So what we have to do is agree with Jesus. That's our responsibility as Christians. We agree with Jesus and Jesus smiles because he knows then that our heart is right with him, in sync with him. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they may be white as snow. That New Testament thought filters all the way from Isaiah saying it in the first chapter of his prophecy. So our heart, forgiveness. Well, what if somebody really has hurt me? Well, where's your heart for God? And how we respond to those things is really what determines where our heart is from God. And Tanya, those are tests that we all need And for your friend and for everybody else listening to this program, um, when you have a reaction that takes the side of the world in any of these issues, 
that's God pointing out how far your heart is from him. So those are the important things. Tanya, thank you very much. Great questions, and hope your friend I'll be praying for. I hope she really decides, you know, God, when he says don't do something, it's because he loves me, not for any other reason. Thank you, Tanya. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app from Kirby. She says, in your last study in Luke 529, could it have been possible that Zacchaeus may have attended Levi's party? Uh, Kirby, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is uh, because they they actually were in different regions. Um, Clearly, the story of Jesus got to Zacchaeus' ears. And later in Jesus' ministry, uh, Zacchaeus is going to come to faith in Christ. Uh, Zacchaeus, a, a tax collector like Matthew, um, would have been um, um, someone who knew that he needed help, somebody that knew that his heart was far from God. And finally, when Jesus was there, it changed everything. But it is unlikely that right after Matthew or Levi's call, um, that Zacchaeus would have been there because they they appeared at different times and they ministered in different locations or ministered. They, they collected taxes. It's not a ministry at all. So I hope that helps. Thank you. Uh, here's a question or a caller, Jared, on line one. Jared, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I have a quick question. Um, the Bible's pretty clear about uh, unequally yoked marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. But the way that it worked out with me and my wife is I wasn't a believer before I met her. And then I really feel like God used her and her commitment to unconditional love for me, uh, among a lot of other things, um, between us, to show me who Jesus really was. And so it was through her that I came to know who Jesus was, and he used her to uh, bring me to Christ. I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I have I had children, and I'm wondering, you know, when they become teenagers, it, should I try to prevent them from, you know, having an unequally yoked relationship, or I don't know, should should I leave some some room there for, for God or their own judgment? That's what her parents mm-hmm. did. Uh, they knew that I wasn't a believer, but they trusted her judgment and. I wasn't, I guess, crazy or something. Yeah. Jared, if, if I understand your question correctly, um, one of the things that we have to um, remember is our responsibility to God to, to rightly represent Him always. And when we have children, uh, our our job as, as fathers, and, and uh, the same thing is true of Christian mothers, uh, our job is to show them the way to walk. And if the Bible says to do something or don't do something, then what we've got to do is take the time with them where we're teaching them, where we're showing them the benefits. Um, but yes, we have to insist. If, if I had a, a teenager who came home um, and said, I want to date a boy, my first question would be, uh, is he saved? Or uh, a boy who wanted to date a girl, is she saved? Where's her heart with Jesus? And, well, you know, she's not really saved, but, but you know, maybe she'll get saved. There's all kinds of excuses. But I just, I would, as a parent, I would forbid the dating relationship. As long as your child is under your roof, you're taking care of them and providing for them, they need to live under Jesus' rules. Now, when they get out of the house and make their own choices, it's a whole different situation. You've got to let them be men or, or, or women growing uh, up, you got to let them deal with the consequences of the bad choices they make. But one of the things that you know the truth about, as as do I, because God used Paula to save me. She was saved 13 years before me. Neither one of us was saved when we got uh, married. Um, uh, one of the things that we know to be true is the pain caused by an unequally yoked relationship. And if you have a, a teenage son or daughter, the, the last thing you would ever allow in their lives is unnecessary pain. And and so there's a time when you simply say, I cannot allow you to do this uh, while you're here under my roof. Now, if they rebel, and often they will, 
that's got to be okay. But here's where having a foundation in the family is really important. I hope your children, Jared, know uh, the story that you just shared, that, that, that her love, her unconditional love for you is what showed you who Jesus was. And then as a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad in the home, then what you can do is, is you can sit down with the Bible and you have stories to tell. You, you can share how God has worked in your life and begin to immerse them in, in, in the gratitude that you and your wife have for the Lord, for what he's done. And you can tell your stories. And stories are always interesting. Um, we just finished our Sweet Summer Devotion series for women here. And, and what God has done in people's lives has a powerful impact on people who are going through similar things. And your children need to be grown, taught in the ways of God. They need to be uh, a part of a family Bible study. Uh, they need to be involved in a church um, with a uh, either youth group or depending on what kind of church you go to, Jared, uh, need to come with mom and dad to church. Uh, we want to immerse them. The world is going to try to steal all this stuff from them. So our responsibility is put as much Jesus as we can. And the reason this is so important to me, and in your particular case, Jared, is because you have a great testimony to share with your children about how faithful your wife was and how God used her to rescue you. And it will help your children grow in appreciation for what she's been through. At the same time, they'll be able to see before their very eyes the power of God. And that power of God is, is the power to restore and to refresh and to rebuild a life. So those um, unequally yoked relationships um, are, are something I would definitely prohibit. Are you still with us, Jared? Does that help? Yeah, I think Jared hung up. Those are really important things. And um, I, I thought when Jared started talking about unequally over relationships, his question was going to be, well, why then do some Christians do it? I've been asking that question for 27 years. If God says don't do it, why do we do it? And the reason that, that, that we do it is because the same reason that we end up getting divorced, because our hearts are hard. Whenever we decide that we know better than God, it comes from a place of a really hard heart. And those hard hearts are really, really dangerous. And one of the things that Jared, if he was still in line, would be able to tell everybody out there, the pain he caused his believing wife as an unbeliever, I can promise she regrets to this very minute. For all of those years that Paula prayed for me, 13 years, for every one of those years, as she was writing down her prayers in a journal, crying out to God, why did you give me this jerk and all those other things? Um, I regret every minute of it. I regret every minute of it. Sometimes when I read those journal entries, I'm so ashamed. Again, I'm forgiven, and Paul and I have a great life together. But to look into that mirror and see what a jerk I was, Here's a woman who had every worldly right and many people giving her the counsel to leave me. She decided she was going to side with Jesus. Jesus said, I love Ron. I want you to love Ron. I hate divorce. I want you to hate divorce. Hang in there with me for 13 years. She hung in there. And that's a testimony that our children were able to watch. My kids weren't saved. They were 18 and 16 when I got saved. And um, the one thing they could deny was the power of the testimony that they saw before their eyes. So, Jared, I hope those things help you a little bit. Thank you. I appreciate the call very, very much. Here is a question from a mobile app from Rich. What did Paul mean when he wrote in Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end? Um, remember the context of, of Ephesians 6 is spiritual warfare. So what he's saying is one of the weapons that we have is the weapon of prayer and praying continually uh, to the church at Thessalonica. He says pray without ceasing. That's such an important weapon. You know, praying is simply talking to Jesus. Sometimes we have an idea that that when we are praying, um, we're, 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 we're on our knees, we're, we're asking God for things. 
prayer is just being in conversation with Jesus. And if we're in conversation with Jesus, we're going to avoid the traps of the enemy, the schemes of the enemy that Paul warns us about. If we're walking and talking with Jesus, we're going to have on all of the armor that was described in the earlier verses in Ephesians chapter 6. And so basically he says, finishing this, this section, pray always with all prayer, all kinds of prayer and supplication, meaning that we can let our needs be known. We can, with thanksgiving, make requests to God. And so to be able to do that, Rich, uh, allows us um, the opportunity um, to be in constant fellowship with the Lord. And, you know, I say all the time in this radio program and to our church as well, just be with Jesus. If you're with him and you're talking with him, you're out of danger. In fact, you're in the safest place you can possibly be. The other thing that always strikes me in this verse is being watchful to this end is we always have to be on guard. We always have to be on guard because the enemy, according to Peter, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for a weakness and opening so that he can devour his prey. And so we always have to be watchful. And the only way we can do that is to be with, to be with Jesus. Rich, good question. Thank you very much. We've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to the Word to Send Them for Life. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We will see you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a question from our email inbox from sharon uh, Pastor On, in the news last week, there was a story about a woman in Michigan who was shamed for breastfeeding in church. Since then, I've seen a couple more articles related to the same talk- topic. Should this be an issue at church? And what does your church do? Um, Sharon, I, I, I saw that same story. Um, uh, and as a pastor, I never cease to be amazed at the little tiny things that we make big things out of. Um this should never be an issue in church. If we're not grown up enough to, to, to rejoice in the fact that a woman can breastfeed the, the baby that's God's gift to her, uh, if we're going to be stumbled by that, one shame on us. So no, this should never be an issue at church. If I found out that somebody was breastfeeding and anybody at this church made a big deal about it, I would go apologize to the woman. I would tell her how embarrassed I am for our behavior. Um, it, it just makes no sense. It, we've got to come into the 21st century in some of these issues of life. We pray for children. We bless children. We dedicate children. Babies are on schedules. Those are good things. Sometimes it can't be avoided. So it's just not one of those things that we ought to make a big deal about at all. Um, all the moms I've seen over the years that have been breastfeeders have done so discreetly. Um, they never trying to draw attention to themselves. Uh, and it really takes a, a horrible, horrible mind to turn that into something that is uh, about sexuality. Or uh, I'm just amazed, Sharon. So I, I apologize to Jesus for this church in Michigan. And... Um, uh, any other churches make a big deal about it? I, I just can't imagine how heartbroken Jesus must be. Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I was watching uh, public radio or our TV last night, and they had a thing on Italy, so I thought I'd watch. And it was in the town of Assisi, and the and 
And I don't really have a question more than I do a comment about the fact that they were talking about St. Francis, you know, of Assisi, and how godly he was. And I honestly believe he truly loved Jesus. And I think that if he were to be put back on the earth to look to see what was going on, he'd be mortified. He had They had his little church that he taught out of, which is, you know, probably about the size of, of my kitchen over here. And... They had it inside this big, ornate, elaborate monstrosity of a church that, you know, was proclaiming him. And, and, and then they're talking about what a simple lifestyle that he would preach and non-materialistic lifestyle and to, and to love Jesus. And yet they're selling all these trinkets and all this stuff. And then they have the big mausoleum, mausoleum I guess, supposedly he's buried in. But I was just absolutely amazed. I, I'm not been aware, you know, of, of um, what was going on there, but it was just more of a, your comment on, on how ridiculous that whole thing is. I'll listen offline, and I was so glad to see you Sunday. <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> God bless you. Uh, Cindy, all I can say is amen to that. You know, if if um, even those great saints have gone before us, men like the Apostle Paul, um, if they were here, they would be so embarrassed and humiliated by the attention that especially the Catholic Church gives. St. Paul, St. Francis, St. this, St. that. We're all saints. We're all saints of God. And, and, and to distort what St. Francis of Assisi did in his life, uh, the work of God that, that was done, and to misrepresent his heart by not only the souvenirs, but having this big church, uh, making something out of him that he never was. He was a humble servant. And that's one of the things when we get to heaven that we're going to be aware of, acutely aware of. Uh, It's one thing to say, as I often say, Paul is one of the heroes of my faith. In fact, the hero of my faith, the Apostle Paul. But if for a second... I revered him, or if for a second I misrepresented, or if I, every time I said his name, I said St. Paul and treated him like he was something special, it, it would be embarrassing to him. So that's all I can say regarding this. But that's what religion does, Cindy. Religion is always trying to misrepresent the heart of God. If we make more out of other people, it gives us something that we can strive to attain for. And it gives us a goal and a hope that on my own strength or on my own merit, I can do something. There's just no way. I'm so grateful to God for the great saints that have gone before us. But here's what I know is true in heaven. They're equally grateful for the great saints that have gone on and are going on after them. So nothing that we do should venerate man or woman. Um... All of our attention should be just Jesus. You know, one of the things, Cindy, that, and because I know you, I know you're old enough to remember this during the hippie days, the Jesus movement days where God's spirit was really moving. Um, the hippies had this thing that would just, you'd say, oh, praise the Lord. And, and especially somebody would offer a song or a word from the Lord or something. And, and you would acknowledge that, oh, man, you so blessed me. They were just very humbly and shyly with closed eyes and the head bowed down, stick one finger in the air and point to Jesus. It's all him. It's all him. That's the way we ought to live our lives. And yet so many of us, we want attention. We make heroes out of people. We give them attention. And it misrepresents their heart before the Lord. So I agree with you, Cindy. It's a shame, but that's just the life, the world that we live in. Here is an anonymous question. I hear you say God cares for us, but why should God care for me? I've done nothing but wrong and haven't cared anything for God. So why should he care for me? Anonymous, the question here isn't why. You know, there's even as you sort of beat yourself up, there's sort of a perverse pride that's behind a question like this. Um, You say you've done nothing but wrong. I'm betting that the wrong that you've done isn't nearly equal to the wrong I've done. 
And even if you've outwronged me, you haven't outwronged the Apostle Paul who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he was the chief of all sinners. And if we understand that, then we don't worry about why. We just rejoice that he does. And the way we rejoice that he does is with grateful hearts say thank you. We don't have to figure out why he loves us because he proved that he did. And Anonymous, his proof is dying for your sins. He knew everything about what you were going to do, the things that you're currently doing. He knows it all. And still he made the choice to die for you. Now to me, and I'm not judging your heart, this sounds like a question from an unbeliever. So here's what I want you to think about. If Jesus loved you so much that he died for your sins, he made provision that all your sins could be wiped out. Why in the world wouldn't you want to serve a God like that? Because you don't think much of you, you don't think he thinks much of you. He thinks about you all day, every day. The one thing he wants from you is your heart. He wants to wipe out your sins. He wants to take the old and, and, and cancel it out. He wants to make your life new. Not improved, brand new. And he's offering you a chance right now, this very minute, to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins for all the wrong that I've done. Ask Jesus to come into your heart, then you'll never again have to worry about why God cares for you. Instead, you can turn it around and simply rejoice that he does. I love the fact that God chose me before the foundation of the world. Romans eight twenty nine. And he chose me and loved me so much that he set his love on me. And in all those years that I rejected him and rebelled against him, and even those years that I caused Paul so much pain, he never once changed his mind about loving me. The reason is because he knew that I was going to come to him. If God knows that about you right now, here's what's going to happen. Heaven is going to smile. Heaven is going to rejoice because the one Jesus craves, the one he just loves so much, has finally come home. Do me a favor, read the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And you're that prodigal son. Let the Lord wrap his arms around you. Anonymous, I hope that helps. Here is a question from our email inbox that just came in from John. Today I was standing in line at a TxDOT office, which requires a lot of prayer in itself. He says in parentheses, I like that. The man standing next to me was unsaved, but said he was a time-to-time Catholic. In conversation about my belief and his being unsure if God is really there, he asked me, why did God allow those two children to be killed by their father in Colorado? Or why did God allow the shooting of Christians in Sutherland Springs? Doesn't God care for those he made? I can explain the fallen world to people who are saved, but I find that explaining God's heart in that context to an unbeliever is difficult. What's the best way to handle these questions by unbelievers? First, John, the thing that you have to understand is that those are almost always dishonest questions. Those are barriers to belief, to faith. This guy's problem is he doesn't know the heart of God. Here's the way I always respond. What would you have God do? If God decided that he's going to stop sin right now today, what would you have God do? What Would you have him kill the father who was going to kill those kids? Or to kill the shooter of the Christians in Sutherland Springs? Now, the, the answer is almost always, well, yeah, he should stop them. Why didn't he permit it? Well, he's also given us free will. And because we live in a fallen world, and I don't think we have to be embarrassed about saying that we live in a fallen world, people do horrible things. Don't blame God for those things. And then because that usually isn't sufficient for them, I ask them one more question. If you think God should prevent sin, and the only way you can do it is by taking people out, judgment, when's the last time you sinned? Did you take God's name in vain this week? Did you have sex with somebody you're not married to? Did you get drunk? Did you do drugs? Why did God allow you to do that? 
And that gives you the opportunity, John, to present the gospel, because what I always follow that with is this. You know, a time is coming, and I personally believe that time is coming soon, when God is going to put a stop to all sin and end to it. But that time's not today. Because if God is going to intervene in this world and forbid sin from happening, then he has to intervene and forbid all sin. And that means you. And then we can share the good news that God has rescued you from sin if you will receive it. All you have to do is ask to be forgiven. Let Jesus come into your heart and he'll change everything. So these are not questions that we have to be embarrassed about. You know, Pastor Frank from the Southern Springs Church was not in his church. He and his wife were speaking in another church on the day it all happened. They lost their daughter. And I'm betting not once as he asked why. There's all kinds of grief, all kinds of other questions. But the way he and his wife have carried on, the way the people in that church have carried on, is a demonstration that they understand that Jesus is going to come. He's going to set the tables straight. But that time is not now. So, if you don't know this, Johnny gave you another opening when he told you time to time Catholic. I always ask people, well, why be a Catholic anytime if you're not sure about where you're going to spend eternity? You see, we deal in facts, not these dishonest questions. Here's the facts. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead. And somebody who is a time-to-time Catholic, he knows the story, he knows the gospel. All we have to do is convince him. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question. This comes from Bev. She says, how do I respond to someone who says a loving God would never send anyone to hell? Um, Bev, I think the, the, the best response, the most obvious response here is simply by saying, do you really believe that? You don't think Hitler deserves to be in hell? You don't think that Lenin or Stalin deserves to be in hell? How about somebody that you hate? You think they should get a pass into heaven? And if they think about it logically, that's exactly what they mean. Well, nobody should go, but but when somebody's hurt me, we want justice. Well, how much more, we who are made in God's image, if we want justice, how much more is God just and demanding of justice? You see, when people ask questions like this, Bev, what they're doing is they're elevating God's love to his overarching attribute when in fact holiness and justice overrides every other attribute of God God can only love us for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life he can only love us because he first made provision for our sin If we understand that, then we understand that there is a condition. We are all eternal beings. So here's what we do. In this life, we choose where we're going to spend forever. If we choose to be with Jesus in eternity, we call that heaven. That requires believing in him and surrendering to his lordship. If we don't want to do that, then we have chosen to spend eternity separate from God. That's what we call hell. And there's only two destinations. There isn't a a second or third choice. There's no other options. So it's easy to expose the fallacy of that line of thinking. All we have to do is say, we live with God or we live separate from Him. One we call heaven, one we call hell. And by the way, why would we want to go to heaven if in fact... We don't want anything to do with God because in heaven, it's him. It's his. We're his. And we're going to be forever in his presence worshiping him. 
Now, I know a lot of unbelievers who consider that hell. But this is about holiness and justice more than it is about love. What's remarkable, Bev, is that God would use holiness and justice to ensure that we had a way to heaven, that our sins could be forgiven. Hope that helps. Eugene says, Revelation 3.5 seems to suggest that our names can be removed from the book of life. You have said that we can be secure in our salvation, which is true. Well, Eugene, the question I have for you is, what about Revelation 3.5 suggests that our names can be removed from the book of life? It's a promise that our names will never be blotted from the book of life, will never be removed. Why people read that and say, well, well, that must mean that some names are out. No, those of us whose names are written in the book will never be erased. They'll never be blotted out. How much more secure can you get than that? So if, in fact, your name has been written in the book of life, we know that happens by virtue of being born again. If, in fact, that's true, why doesn't that make us feel more secure than ever before? When Jesus says, I will never blot out your name. I think the emphasis there is important. What he's saying is that not only are you in the book, but you're so security in the book that you can never come out of the book. That's about as much security as I think that we can have. One of the things I think that really breaks the heart of God is how many Christians are not secure in their salvation. Uh, I... Jesus said, if you abide in him, he will abide in us. When we're abiding in him, we have no security issues. It's when we are in sin that those questions arise. And Eugene, too many times, this whole idea of eternal security is Christians wanting to know, or professing Christians wanting to know, well, can I sin and still go to heaven? And the Bible's written in a very specific way to terrify people who are living in willful sin. We have to remember that we have to remember that God knows our heart. He knows the motives of our heart. Paul and I were talking about this yesterday. Motive is everything for everything that we do. And if in fact our hearts are right with God, then we don't have any security issues. So Revelation 3, 5 to me is about as much security as we're ever going to get. I might also suggest Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Eugene. Um, I think God wants us to be secure. 340-9585. Mike uh, wrote, Pastor Ron, you've said that you teach through the whole Bible. Can you explain how you do that and what you really mean by it? Well, Mike, uh, what I mean by it is I think it's pretty straightforward. Um... We start at the beginning of a book, and we teach however much time I have, and then the next week we pick up in the next verse. And we do that through the entire Bible. Now, I have not taught through the entire Bible yet. We only do Old Testament one night a week. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, um, you know, more books than, than in the New Testament, and some of them are very, very long books. So what I've taught through most of them I haven't taught through all of them yet, but I'm hoping that before the Lord is ready for me to come home, that I'll be able to teach uh, through the, the the rest of the of the Old Testament. I know I'm starting on Isaiah. Isaiah is so intimidating because it's so long, and there's a lot of tedium in the book of Isaiah, but um, we're, we're going to tackle it at the beginning, and we're just going to do it the way we've always done it. So the way I do it is very simple. On Sunday, we finished last week. Uh, or the last time I taught before my surgery. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to pick up this week exactly where we left off, and I'm going to finish the chapter this week. Then the next week, we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 1. And here's the beauty of this, Mike. The beauty of it is I can't miss out on anything if I'm teaching Ephesians verse by verse or Romans verse by verse or 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 uh, any of the Gospels verse by verse. There's nothing that I can avoid. I can't kind of go to pet topics. I can't disqualify difficult subjects or or or, or uh, questions. We get through everything. And the Apostle Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in the Book of Acts. 
he said to them in his farewell, I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He couldn't say that if he didn't teach him everything. And this is where I believe, Mike, a lot of churches are simply approaching it wrong. The book of Acts, the model for the church, says that early believers were devoted to, it's a very strong word, they were clinging to the apostles' doctrine. That was teaching. And I think when we teach topical messages or when we give feel-good messages or when we only talk about certain topics because they're the topics that everybody likes to hear, I think in those cases, Mike, we're doing Jesus a real disservice and we're doing our people a real disservice. So all we do is we teach. What I want the people to do with me is I want them to, to, to hear what the passage means. I want them to hear what it what it says. And then I want them to hear how they can use it when they leave church on that particular day. So, Mike, I hope that helps. We've got very little time. But let's go to Marty and line one. Marty, thanks for calling. Very quickly, what's on your mind? Yes, Pastor Ron, I was just listening to you talk about reading through the Bible, and I just was wanting to ask, uh, do you do it in such a way, because I, I listen to uh, Vernon McGee, which mm-hmm. he's no longer here with us, but uh, he kind of goes from Old Testament into New Testament back and forth. Do you do it like that yourself, or you just stick with the Old Testament until you get to the New Testament? No, I'm not. I'm not as interesting as J. Vernon McGee, but but pretty much we do it the same way. I don't start at Genesis and go through Revelation. I try to let the Spirit sort of lead where we're going to go. Uh, so uh, on on Wednesday nights, I'm, it's always an Old Testament night. Friday nights is a New Testament book. We're currently in the Book of Acts, and on Sunday mornings, it's a different New Testament book. So Fridays and Sundays are always New Testament, and on Wednesdays, it's always Old Testament. And I don't go through it from start to finish. Uh, uh, and the reason I don't do it is because I, we don't need four Gospels in a row. We don't need uh, all of the prophets. I, I imagine going from, from Isaiah to Jeremiah, uh, then to Ezekiel. Everybody would be completely worn out, and we want them to, to have a fresh approach. So we just try to let the Spirit lead and pick the book, but uh, that's the way we do it here. And uh, if you're listening to J. Vernon McGee, you're getting good. I go slower than he does, but you're getting a great foundation. Don, Brielle, and Erica going through New Mexico. Please be careful. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.